the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Earnestly seek to commend yourself to God as an approved worker who has nothing to be ashamed of, handling the word of truth with precision. We're glad you're joining us for today's program, A Word from the Word, with your host, Pastor Tom, who will unpack for us the richness and beauty of the Bible's original languages as they bear on key words and concepts from both Testaments. Our hope is that your walk with God will be strengthened and deepened, and both your understanding and application of God's Word will be enriched, and you'll be drawn to love it more and more each day. And now, here's Pastor Tom. Hello, friends. Thanks for joining me on A Word from the Word. If you've been with me for our last four sessions, you know we've been walking down the path or road to the resurrection of our Redeemer. I lovingly called these four sessions the Resurrection Rewind series. And on this road or path, we've seen it's peppered with divine paradoxes. I singled out four pertinent paradoxes during that brief window of time between Jesus' transfiguration in Matthew 17 and his triumphal entry, our Palm Sunday, in Matthew 21. In so doing, we sliced a piece of Jesus' teaching ministry out of the last two or so weeks of his life. Recall the clock was winding down for Jesus, so he was focused on and zeroing in on these specific divine paradoxes of the kingdom of God. And for review, by paradox we mean seeming contradictions, reversals even, that when investigated further become well-founded, even true. Friends, the purpose of Jesus' paradoxes is to contrast the kingdom of God's mindset with the world's stereotypical thinking patterns. I've said that God's kingdom and this world's kingdom are kingdoms in conflict, mindsets in conflict. We drew from two terms used frequently in the New Testament that unfortunately are camouflaged a bit by our English translations. One of them, life, which is really the suke life, the self-driven life, the other being life, but is really the zoe life, the spirit-governed life. Thankfully, the Apostle Paul helps us grasp these very concepts in 1 Corinthians 3 and Romans 7, contrasting them as the carnal Christian life with the spiritually mature Christian life. He urges us to stop living carnally and start living spiritually. He reinforces this in Galatians 2, 19-21, validating what I've said throughout this series, that one function of the cross is to crucify our self-driven life. The writer of Hebrews also urges his readers to move ahead towards spiritual maturity in chapter 6. Well, friends, in today's session, we'll find that the divine paradoxes don't end with Palm Sunday. So I'm calling it 
Palms, Pomp, and Circumstance, Triumph God's Way. This will be part five in our Resurrection Rewind series, because Jesus bids us to understand these paradoxes and be willing to embrace them through personal surrender. So today's text is Matthew 21, 1 through 11, often called the triumphal entry. But you might say, Pastor Tom, I've already heard a Palm Sunday message. And I'd reply, not like this one, triumph God's way. All four Gospels record this Palm Sunday event, each with their own emphasis and their details varying accordingly. So reading all four accounts gives us a fuller picture, and it's easy to do since they're all somewhat compact. Today we'll include bits from Mark 11, Luke 19, and John 12. We'll start with Matthew since his Gospel bridges the Hebrew Scriptures, our Old Testament, to what we call the New Testament. Matthew's audience is primarily Jewish, so he has more Old Testament quotes, 93, compared to Luke's 80, Mark's 49, and John's 33. Before we tackle Matthew 21, I've created a kind of hybrid reading, injecting into Matthew's account texts from Mark, Luke, and John that Matthew doesn't have. This will give us a better picture of this key Palm Sunday paradox. We don't want to miss even the minutest details, as this is a crucial and significant moment for Jesus, religiously and politically. So, friends, let's dive into Matthew 21. Along the way, I'll insert additions from the other Gospels. As they, Jesus and his disciples, approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village, and at once you find a donkey there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt the foal of a donkey. Friends, only Matthew quotes the bulk of Zechariah 9.9. The whole verse says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout, daughter of Jerusalem! See your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt the foal of a donkey. Mark and Luke make no reference to Zechariah's prophecy, and John just says, As it is written, Matthew's intentional messianic quote flags his audience that Jesus' actions fulfill Old Testament prophecies. So he doesn't need to quote Zechariah verbatim, since his audience, remember, primarily Jews, will have an aha moment and recall Zechariah's text, at least its gist. You see, friends, Matthew wants to make sure we don't overlook his messianic tie-in to God himself, Yahweh, the covenant and personal God of the Israelites. Matthew's smart, isn't he? He's aware his Hebrew audience knows full well that God, Yahweh, is the quintessential king of Israel. Isaiah 44, 6 says, Thus says the Lord, Yahweh, the king of Israel, and his redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first, and I am the last, and there is no other God besides me. 
In John 1, Philip's words to Nathanael are crucial. We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. From that statement springs Nathanael's famous reply, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Then Jesus comes and talks with Nathanael, and Nathanael responds with these equally famous words, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Can you see now, friends, why the Pharisees told Jesus to rebuke his disciples on that festal yet fateful day we call Palm Sunday? They heard these praise declarations from the Old Testament, buzzwords and phrases like, Hosanna, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They knew exactly what was implied. But there's another subtle inference here I want us to catch. Zechariah 9.9 9 also describes God with the term gentle. And it's the only place in the Old Testament that describes God with this particular word gentle. Fitting synonyms are lowly humble and meek, words found in other respected English translations. Ring a bell? Is your mind recalling Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30, which includes, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly, or gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. Friends, on that festal yet fateful Palm Sunday, Jesus permits one last rare display of public celebration and enters Jerusalem, the capital city. But unlike typical triumphal entries, for this is triumph God's way. You see, it was common in this era for conquering generals to have a triumphal entry on the return of their home city. An integral part of these celebrations, especially military victories, was waving palm branches. Another common practice that showed respect and honor to conquerors or royalty was to deck the processional or parade route with garments like cloaks, coats, flowers, and tree branches like palm fronds. The adoring subjects would walk or run ahead of the honored one and drop these items in their path. Although some of these elements reflected a typical triumphal entry, others are disturbingly different or missing. Remember, this was the annual Passover festival, a major Jewish feast lasting several days and attended by people from all over the Roman Empire. Friends, this was a peak season for tourists. The streets were wild with excitement. Well, let's rejoin the celebration at Matthew 21, 8. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest heaven! When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. John's gospel adds where some of these people came from, pilgrims from distant areas, possibly Galilee, who may have witnessed some of Jesus' miracles, the multitudes in Bethany who saw Lazarus resurrected, and those from Jerusalem and its surrounding area. But the curious thing here is that a common Roman procession would have been more lavish and would have included a parade of gold-gilded chariots, prancing and ornately robed warriors, 
war horses, trumpets blaring in a well-orchestrated ceremony, and the honored person surrounded by city officials and celebrities. So today's session is called Palms, Pomp, and Circumstance, Triumph, God's Way. And like most official processions today, a parade route's final destination is usually the hallowed halls of a government seat or Capitol building, But something peculiar was going on this time. This festal yet fateful Palm Sunday, their Messiah came down this road to Jerusalem. But instead of the usual ostentatious display, Jesus made his grand entrance on a common beast of burden, a donkey, a young colt no less, one which no one had ever ridden. No celebrities surrounded Jesus. His entourage was a band of peasant fishermen, rural Galileans, and a former tax collector. When Jesus' parade came to a screeching halt, it was not at one of Rome's prestigious political power centers, but rather the National Jewish Worship Center, the Temple Courts. And friends, what does Jesus do next? He scolds the money changers for desecrating the court of the Gentiles, an area reserved for prayer, one that was turned into a shopping mall, exchanging currency at exorbitant rates. Friends, are we seeing the rich symbolism in Jesus' various gestures? And here's the heart of the Palm Sunday paradox, Jesus letting himself be hailed as king, yet contrasting himself with a conquering king by riding on an animal symbolizing gentleness, humility, and servanthood. His gestures were designed to correct the misperceptions of a Messiah figure already rampaging. The Jews salivated for a military deliverer. They could taste it. Messiah had become a loaded term, carrying overtones of military insurrection, political intrigue, and government overthrows. In other words, yearning for national deliverance. Messiah became charged with subversive connotations, and Jesus knew this all along. Now we understand why at times Jesus strategically discouraged people from broadcasting he was the Messiah. Remember Peter's famous confession in response to Jesus' question, Who do you say that I am? Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Well, after that incredible revelation, who would have imagined that in Matthew 16:20 we'd read, Then Jesus ordered his disciples not to tell anyone he was the Messiah. What? Jesus not only ordered his disciples, but the common people and even demons. In Luke 4, we read demons came out of many people, declaring that Jesus was the Messiah. So Jesus silenced them all. Friends, the only reasonable and rational explanation for this is their first century perception of Messiah. So Jesus dissuaded disciples, the disenfranchised, and the demons from using this loaded term. This tells me why Matthew was selective in how much of Zechariah 9.9 he quoted. He skipped 
righteous and having salvation. I submit Matthew skipped it because he was keenly aware of this skewed perception of Messiah. My take is he was downplaying the salvation-deliverance connection, so his audience would not read into his gospel that the deliverance Jesus brought was a national or a military deliverance. After all, they could easily recall how God used Moses at the Red Sea, when with the Egyptian army on their heels, Moses said, Stand still and see the salvation, in other words, deliverance and rescue, that the Lord will bring to you today. The Israelites of that day understood salvation meant being delivered or rescued from a military enemy, and not the salvation from sin we 21st century believers commonly think of. Friends, the Palm Sunday paradox, or reverse mindset, includes that Jesus came first to conquer sin and death, bring spiritual deliverance and salvation to his people, not overthrow the existing Roman political empire with military force. It's absolutely amazing that even after Jesus' resurrection and nanoseconds before he ascends to the Father, the disciples still asked him this inane question. In Acts 1-6, after he spent 40 days teaching them about the kingdom of God, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Really? Well, let's pause here, friends. If you tuned in late, you're listening to A Word from the Word with me, your host, Pastor Tom. I want you to know how valuable you are as listeners to A Word from the Word, which is listener-funded. Your financial partnership keeps this program on the air, which also disciples Christians without a church home, plus those of you who may have been wounded by the institutional church. Join forces with me and A Word from the Word by emailing me for support details at a word from the word at minister.com. We'll repeat this info at the end of the program. Now, friends, this mindset of the disciples began back in Luke 24 with the two on the road to Emmaus. You remember it, right? Please read verses 13 through 35 for today. Key is the verses 20 and 21, where these two disciples say to Jesus, and remember, Jesus hid his identity from them initially. He, Jesus, was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. Now here it comes. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Did you hear that, friends? Did you hear their hope that was totally rooted in national deliverance or rescue from the ironed hand of Rome's oppression? For them, redemption wasn't redemption from sin. They didn't see their need for spiritual salvation. They were salivating for an earthly redemption and salvation, a rescue born from a military overthrow. Friends, compiling all the hosannas or praise statements in the four Gospels, we get this list of cries. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the king of Israel. Now, our English word Hosanna needs unpacking. It's actually two words, Hebrew, Yashana, and Aramaic, Hoshiana. These original words have camouflaged within them God's name, Yah, and Jesus' name. 
name, Yeshua, both meaning salvation. In Matthew one twenty one, the angel clues us in on Jesus' name and mission. You, Joseph, are to give him the name Yeshua, for he shall save his people from their sins. That little word, nah, packs a punch. It's critical we grasp what the crowd's praise statements implied. Nah gives the word Hosanna its sense of urgency. And why the best English translation is now. By shouting Hosanna, the crowds voiced an urgent demand for earthly deliverance. We may interpret their statement as Messiah, deliver us now. In other words, we want it here and now. The Jews had waited hundreds of years for this moment, and the Pharisees and religious leaders knew exactly what those hosannas implied. They originated from Psalm 118. We know this because Luke 19, 39, and 40 and the Pharisees reply to these praise statements made by the crowd and Jesus' disciples. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, "'Teacher, rebuke your disciples!' Jesus replied, I tell you, if these keep quiet, the stones will cry out. And we'll see the intentional connection here in a moment. But here's a teaser. Psalm 118.22 refers to the stone the builders rejected, which had become the cornerstone. Verse 23 says, Yahweh, save us, grant us success, or Hoshiana, ding, ding, ding. Verse 27 says, The Lord, Yahweh, is God, and he has made his light shine on us. With bows in hand, join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. Ding, ding, ding. See how messianic this all is? The religious leaders were not stupid. You see, friends, the crowd was not crying, Lord, save me now. In other words, save me from my sins, forgive me now, but save us now. Save Israel now. Deliver Israel from Rome once and for all. Sadly, the crowd's outward cry didn't lead them to wanting the inward condition. And friends, this misperceived inward condition, even on the part of his disciples, is reinforced by three seemingly unimportant elements which illuminate the paradox in this Palm Sunday account. The first being the cult. And friends, all three elements contrast the outward display with the inward disposition and the fact that the presence of one does not necessarily guarantee the presence of the other. And for the cult, only Luke 19.35 mentions that the disciples put Jesus on the cult. And the significance of this seemingly unimportant element is that these actions by the disciples reflected that they shared the same sentiment as the crowds. Why would Luke alone sneak this idea into the story? I believe the point here is that everybody wanted Jesus on that cult. Jesus let them put him on the cult. But friends... Jesus knew they all were exalting him at the wrong time. It was his time to first humble himself. Read Philippians 2, 7 and 8 for the sequence the Father had for Jesus. The bulk of this crowd that shouted Hosanna one week later shouted, Crucify him, incited by the religious leaders. From the cult, we now move to the second seemingly insignificant element, the palms. Matthew 21, 8 says, A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. 
John 12.12 adds, The crowds took palm branches. Waving palm branches certainly demonstrated their outward religious zeal, but did the crowd really get the inward implications? Did they truly understand Jesus' mission? Isaiah 49.16 says, See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. You see, it's easy to wave palm branches. They're not part of our body. We'll eventually discard them till next year, and then we'll wave them again. But how quick are we to spread our human palms out and have them nailed to a cross and die to sin and the self-life become living sacrifices per Romans 12, 1 and 2? Galatians 2.20 also challenges us. Read it, friends. Well, the third seemingly insignificant element is the stones. Luke says the Pharisees told Jesus to rebuke his disciples for joining in with the crowds and their hosannas. Jesus' now famous reply is, If they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Think back to Jesus' woes to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, concluding with, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. Jesus' cry that the stones will cry out convicts the Pharisees about the stones that were used to silence those who cried out for God in the past, the prophets. Now in their place, another stone will cry out against them. One last stone, one last prophet crying out is Jesus. But they still want to silence him and his disciples because he comes in the name of the Lord and God, Yahweh. So friends, here's some closing questions. Are we like the colts, not resisting its master? Are we like the palms, mere branches? Or are our palms pierced with nails like our master? Are we like stones, silencing and rejecting our master's message? It's certainly our decision, friends, isn't it? Amen. Amen. Well, friends, we're nearing the end of today's program. And as promised, we'll be closing with an email where you may write me, plus inquire about how to financially support A Word from the Word, a listener-funded program. I also love coming alongside those of you without a church home at this time, plus those of you who may have been wounded by the institutional church, Podcasts are posted at faithtalk1360.com. Just search the menu for local program podcasts. Podcasts may also be accessed on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And thanks to my friends and partners at christianbody.net, a word from the word is broadcast to over 70 countries. Friends, there's still time to consider investing in the mission of a word from the word this year and help us become fully funded. We have not been immune from the challenging financial and economic times we're all living in. It's listeners like you that help keep this program on the air. Well, thanks for listening today, friends. And remember, Jesus loves you. I'm Pastor Tom with a word from the word. Friends, if you would like to let Pastor Tom know what this program has meant to you, email him at a word from the word at minister.com. That's a word from the word at minister.com.
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.